If you're uh, an old-timer at North Wake, uh, for you all this morning, I want, again, just to kind of remind you, whenever I get a chance to bring the, the message uh, to our congregation, I like to help us, and as elders, we've agreed upon this. Every once in a while, it's really good for us to not use the PowerPoint to remind us of how important it is to have the Scriptures open in front of us and to be interacting with the text of Scripture itself. So that's the pattern I'll be following this morning. If you have your Bible, please open it to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning as we engage the Scriptural text. Let me talk to you a little bit as you're opening your text to that about the, uh, the idea of freedom. Freedom is the, the topic that we'll be talking about today in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, is the place we'll be spending the majority of our time. We'll work through the entire text. But the idea of freedom is probably the word that we most frequently use to describe the American experience. What I mean by that is Americans, we enjoy freedom of speech. We enjoy uh, freedom of press, freedom of religion. We are uh, living according to our own desiring of how we want to do that. We have certain freedoms in this country that we are actually willing to uh, die for with our soldiers. But a long time before freedom became something identified with the United States and with America, it was a thoroughly Christian word. The earliest Christians often described their experience of God's salvation in Christ as a passage from slavery to freedom. And salvation as freedom from slavery is an idea that runs throughout the New Testament, but it's particularly poignant in the book of Galatians where we'll be reading today. And so for our context, let me just remind you a little bit of what's been going on in this book and where the book comes from is the context of what it was writing, because it'll be very helpful for us today as we work through the passage. Remember that um, the context of this passage is that Paul went on a missionary journey through what is modern-day Turkey. And as he came to central Turkey, or what we call Central Asia at the time, he did evangelism, and in the process of that, saw converts come to Christ. And so Paul stays, and he trains them. They become able to run their own church. And so, in essence, Paul plants some churches in the region of Galatia, which we would call modern-day Turkey. Now, what happened there after Paul left, he went on to go preach the gospel in other places. After Paul left, some people came in behind him who were called Judaizers, and these folks were basically adding something to the gospel message that Paul preached. Instead of the idea that a person needs to place their faith in Christ alone for salvation, these folks came along and they added the idea that in order to be a real Christian, you also needed... In order to earn right favor with God, you also needed to follow Jewish ritualisms, and in particular, circumcision. Now, in our text today, it's going to be really important that that particular rule was added, and we'll see why when we get to verse 12. But the idea here is that only by doing those good works plus faith could someone have right relationship with God. Now, this sort of thing actually happens frequently within the church even today where someone will come along and teach a new believer or, or maybe folks who've been believers a long time, add something to the idea that you, it's not just faith in Christ that saves you, but it's what you must do in addition to make yourself favorable to God. And what it'll sound like are little questions like this. Doesn't God really require us to do something for our forgiveness? Doesn't God have some requirements for us to fulfill? Is it really possible that God could forgive us for free? Shouldn't I make my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and hopefully God will grade a bit on a curve? And what we do is we begin to add these legalisms to the gospel. And I want to suggest to you that actually the most common false teaching that takes place in the church or really in the world today is one that makes God's love and forgiveness and heaven and our experience of going there dependent upon us doing something. 
no matter how small that something might be. That's what happened to the Galatians. They were basically told, look, you're not really a Christian until you go through this Jewish ritual of circumcision and then you make yourself acceptable to God. Now, in our culture, it takes on a little different form. In our culture, you might hear phrases a little bit more like, um, you know what, you're really not a Christian if you wear those kind of clothes, or if you drink that certain beverage, you're not really a Christian. Or um, it, it might depend on what kind of music you listen to, or, or uh, maybe even what kind of politician you vote for, or maybe there's some moral issue that's tied to this. And what we do is we add these little requirements. And what I want us to see from the text today, how important this was to Paul. Because Paul's going to tell us this is incredibly serious. In fact, he says, if you want to have yourself circumcised, or we might translate and say, if there's anything you want to add to the gospel, to the message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, if you want to add anything to that to make yourself presentable to God, he's going to tell you that you're not a Christian at all. Now, that's serious. And it, it, it requires of us that we take a good, strong look at the text In other words, if I were to say it a little differently, the great irony that we want to learn from this week as Paul's teaching is that while it's the human tendency to want to dress ourselves up and make make ourselves presentable before God, and it's also the human tendency to want others to live according to our rules, if we say you need to do this to be a real Christian, you're really demonstrating you're not a real Christian at all. That's the great irony of the text, and Paul's going to help us to see this as we go through it today. This is what Luther, Martin Luther, actually was communicating about this text of Scripture when he said it this way. To want to merit grace by works which precede faith, in other words, if you want to do some good works before faith in order to be presentable to God, it's, that's like wanting to appease God by sins, which is nothing but adding sins to sins. It's laughing at God and provoking his wrath. So once again, Paul's going to remind us here that you cannot ever earn God's forgiveness. His favor comes through the work of Christ on our behalf. Now, again, before we read the text, let me just illustrate why it's so important that we we dig into this. If you will, consider the insidious nature of legalism and how legalism oftentimes sneaks in and ruins individual believers as well as the church as a whole. You see, there's a connection between what we would describe as legalism or adding good works to the gospel and what we would say is the charge of hypocrisy that's oftentimes leveled at the church. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. Uh, many of you know that I, I grew up in a Roman Catholic home. I wasn't uh, a Protestant and, and certainly not a Southern Baptist until I was a little bit older. When I first came to Christ, I actually had an opportunity to be discipled, and then I, I went on and worked for a Christian ministry in western North Carolina. Now, this camp that I worked at was really interesting because on the road, uh, Upper Flat Creek Road in Weaverville, North Carolina, there were two churches. And in these churches, it was fascinating. The one church that was a Baptist church thought it would be an incredible sin if you smoked. The other church down the road, it was an incredible sin if you drank. They were both Baptist churches, and they never interacted with each other. So it was really interesting to hear from the one group of, of, of folks in this one church. They actually grew tobacco and sold it because it's North Carolina, right? And so it was okay to smoke in that church and the other church. And, and what was interesting to me as I sat there and watched it, I had no interest in going to either one. See, what happens is when we do these kind of adding of legalisms, what we do is we begin to set up for people to ask the question, why are they picking that rule and not that rule? Sounds like a bunch of hypocrites to me. 
In fact, sometimes they'll say, you'll hear people say these things. I don't go to church anymore because they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. That's what tends to happen when we add legalisms that are not actually in the Scriptures to the Scriptures themselves. Jesus said it this way. He said, get rid of the plank in your own eye before you look at the speck in someone else's. And he described the most religious people on the planet, the Pharisees, as people who were whitewashed tombs because they cleaned up the outside, but the inside was like dead men's bones. Now, these, these little legalisms we add, they can split denominations. They can split local churches. They can leave a black eye on the witness of the Christian to the community. Let me give you two illustrations of this that I recently bumped into. I had, uh, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity... God was very gracious to me. I had the opportunity to travel with 26, 27 other Christian men and four river rafting guides down the Grand Canyon. I did a whitewater rafting trip down the Grand Canyon. It was a fabulous time. And I'll share a little bit about it today and perhaps a little bit more next week about some of the things I learned there. But what was interesting is that there was 26 Christian men on the trip. We had four river guides who they contracted out with, none of whom were believers. So I took the opportunity while I was on this trip to, uh, to get to know the two guys that were driving the boat that I was on and, and have the opportunity to talk with them about the gospel. One of those guys' name was Tank, T-A-N-K. Great guy. Uh, Tank, as during the week, as I started to engage with him and ask him, I just ask him simple questions. Spiritual conversations are easy to start. And you say, hey, you know, are you really interested in religious things or did you ever grow up in going to church? And so we had those kind of conversations, and, and what it turned out is that Tank had actually grown up in a, in a home where they went to a church, but as he described it, it was a church that was full of legalisms. And here was his comment when I asked him about Jesus. He said, Jesus is cool, Christians not so much. And by about the t- age of 17, he was done with church, at least for the rest of his life from his point of view. We're praying for Tank. Last night I was looking through the uh, uh, online newspaper. I guess you don't get many in print anymore. I'm looking at USA Today Online. And I noticed that on the front page of the USA Online version, there was an article that talked about a novelist named Anne Rice. Some of you might know this uh, name. If you get a chance, you might even look this up later today if you're interested in what I'm about to say. The novelist Anne Rice, um, she's the gal who wrote books on vampires, in particular the Interview with a Vampire series. She wrote all those books long before this Twilight silliness uh, strange phenomena <laughs> took over these teenage girls. It's, um, which, by the way, if you're a teenage boy, I've just slammed you. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Anne Rice writes these books. Now, she was a non-believer when she wrote these books, and she explains that she was actually in a point where she was really searching out what she believed about truth. And she wrote these books from the point of a non-believer, and so they came, came out in the form of vampire books. And then she eventually got herself into Christianity, and um, here's the, the headline that came out yesterday on the U.S. News and, uh, or US Today, USA Today. Novelist Anne Rice ditches Christianity for Christ. She says she's quit being a Christian because she's hanging on to Christ. She's just fed up with the followers. Listen to the rest of this. Um, Here's a quote that she put on Facebook. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. Now, I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. 
For 10 years I've tried, I failed, I'm an outsider, my conscience will no longer allow it. What an indictment on the bride of Christ. You know, there's a side of this that's kind of good, that she's sticking to her Bible and sticking to Christ. But how sad is it that those who the world should taste and see that the Lord is good are described by one of their own as hostile, disputatious, quarrelsome, and deservedly infamous. I quit. You see, the Scripture teaches us that those who are watching should be able to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And I wonder what our part in that is. Could it be that when we misunderstand freedom, that we actually don't taste very good anymore to the world that watches us? Let's look at our text of Scripture today. Sorry for that long introduction, but I think it will help as we dig into it a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read 1 through 12. I'm in the New American Standard. For those who might have a little different version, it might sound a little bit different, but the the content will be the same. Here we go. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. But I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Before we get to verse 12, let's work up to it through verse 1, okay? Here's something I want you to spend some time thinking about. Look at verse 1 and just look at the first phrase in there. This is really crucially important for us. This passage is going to give us an incredible encouragement as well as a very strong warning as you just heard. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Now, if you're not careful, you might just read over this and miss the really important nuance of what Paul's doing in this passage. So let me, first of all, give you a definition of how I'm understanding freedom in the text today, and I'll actually develop this probably a little bit more next week. But let me, let me give you a, free, uh, a definition. Freedom in Christ Jesus is the believer's liberty or the release from all restraints that hinder radical devotion to God. Freedom in Christ Jesus is the believer's liberty or release from all restraints that hinders radical devotion to God. Now, the way our culture oftentimes handles freedom is very different than what I just said. Our culture oftentimes describes freedom as freedom to do whatever you want. But that's not at all a biblical notion of freedom. What freedom is in the Scripture is that you're now being freed to be the kind of person God created you to be. He's creating you, or he originally created, and we ruined through our own sin. He created us to worship him and to live a life of beauty before him. 
So when we see in the scriptures that we've been freed, the best understanding of this is that we now have not just the ability to make choices, we have the ability to make choices that are right and that are good, that are aligned with love and truth and beauty and fullness and purity so that our life can flourish before the king. Freedom is never independence from God. True freedom is a life lived joyfully aligned with the things of God. The idea of autonomy dominates our culture. And autonomy means that people think of themselves as independent decision makers who are not connected to other people and certainly not connected to God. But that's an idea that comes out of the 17th century. It doesn't come from Scripture. Freedom in Scripture is always being rightly aligned to God and living a life that's beautiful before him. Now listen to this and and look at this passage again. Notice what it's saying here. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, look at the juxtaposition of those words. What it's saying is that you were in something, okay, and Christ set you free from that, and the reason he set you free from that was for the purpose of freedom. Okay, so in other words, you've been set free from something in order that you might be free to do something or to be something. Okay, and that's really a crucial element because most of the time, if we're not careful, the preaching will only be on what we've been freed from and will underemphasize what we've been freed to or for. Okay, so let's look at this passage and we'll see this. Let me explain, first of all, what we've been freed from. Some of the things that are uh, there, if you want to make a list of these, you can look at these passages later. I'll tell you what they are and I'll read them for you. Scripture describes in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, in particular verses 34 through 36, John 8, 34 through 36, freedom from, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sins is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So freedom from sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, read this way. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you're a Christian and you're here today, you are no longer enslaved to the bodily sins that once encumbered you. In other words, you don't have to do that sin again. For the one who has died has been set free from sin, the passage says. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 tells you that when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that were by nature not God at all, false gods. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the scripture says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, being Christ, partook of the same things, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and he might then deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what have we been freed from? What's the summary of those verses? Well, we've been freed from condemnation. We've been freed from the worship of false gods. We've been freed from sin. We've also been freed from the the, uh, have-to nature of sin in our own bodies. In other words, you don't have to sin again. And you've been freed from the necessity of having to follow all the details of the law 
in order to find pleasures before God. That's pretty sweet that we've been freed from those things. But perhaps what's even sweeter is what we've been freed to. And this is crucial for us as we grow in our faith. In John chapter 8, verses 32 and 36, Jesus says some words that are very helpful for us to begin to understand this. A little bit of this I'll develop more next week, but let me just give you a taste of that. In John 8, 32, Jesus says this to the Jews who had believed in him. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let me just emphasize here and read it again. If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, freedom isn't just to do whatever you want. This whole book of Galatians, as Paul has been teaching, he's trying to get them to understand, you can't add anything to get into heaven by your own good works, but once you're freed from all those constraints of the law, you're also freed to live in beauty before me, and that means living in the light of the way God wants us to live. And if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You see, the phrase for freedom, you were set free for freedom, was well known in the ancient world. This was actually interesting to me as I was studying this this week. It's been found in numerous documents in relation to the freeing of slaves in some of the ancient Greek and Roman cultures that the procedure was such that if a slave saved up enough money so they could earn some money sometimes as slaves, or if a church raised the money, then if the slave raised it themselves, they might donate it to the church, and then the church would buy that slave from the slave owner And what they would tell the slave as they were freed by the local church, that the slave was then the property of God, and nobody had a right to make a claim against them except God. Now, the way that that translates into our context here in our passage then, as you understand for freedom, it's the idea that Christ, when he died on the cross and he pours out his blood, his blood pays the ransom for us to be bought out of slavery. And now we're the property of God, and nobody can make a claim against us except God. So it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. In this context, then, believer, follower of Christ, this means you're free to love. It means you're free to live. It means you're free to serve. It means you're free to live. It means you're free to pursue life without fear of what other people think about you. It means you're free from the fear of death. It means you're free to commit yourself to the kingdom values and in the expansion of that kingdom for the glory of God. It means free indeed. Free indeed. Jesus promised that once you have this life, you can then have life abundantly in John chapter 10, verse 10. Now, it's because of this in the second half of chapter 5, or excuse me, second half of 5, 1 then, this is why Paul then says to them, therefore, keep standing firm. Keep standing firm in your faith. And let me emphasize how important this is. All throughout the New Testament, Paul has these injunctions for the believer to stand firm in their faith. And so what we need to understand is that there's something that we have to stand firm upon. Okay, so let me show you some of these injunctions from the Scripture. One of my favorite ones is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, where it says, Paul says, Be watchful, stand firm in faith, act like men, be strong. Now, while I do think this would be a a verse that does apply to everybody of both genders, I think Paul was after something very specific in Acts chapter 16. Our culture gets confused about the difference between being a male and being a man. You might have a male body, but what I think Paul wanted the believers to understand, if you really want to be a man, 
then you have to stand. You have to stand up for your faith. You have to stand up for truth, and you have to know what the foundation of your life is. Act like men. Have a firm foundation. Well, part of that understanding of what it means to be strong and have a firm foundation, you can see in other passages of Scripture. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6, this whole discussion of the armor of God. Note that three times in these two verses here, also in verse 11, you'd see a fourth time, this understanding of standing and having strength to stand. Paul says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In other words, the way that you stand and the foundation you have is the very message of the gospel itself. Paul said it this way, as he was teaching Timothy and passing on the mantle of leadership to Timothy in the church, he said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. How are you strong in grace? Let me give you two more verses to help you see and understand this. The way that we're strong in grace is we understand that that while we were sinners, in other words, while we were people that God should have rightful wrath towards, God at that moment demonstrated love for us. It's not because I've done anything to earn favor before God. It's not because I've, I've been circumcised or baptized or done good works or read my Bible every day. None of those things. Rather, God demonstrated love while I was a sinner by dying for me. And that's why the foundation of every believer that we have to stand on is that it was by God's grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not about the works that we've done. We can't boast about it. It's a gift that God gave us. We can't work for it. And that believer is the firm foundation upon which we stand. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, you were set free from sin to live for freedom. And the firm foundation of that is the rock of Christ and what Christ has done for us. Now, this is really very important because what happens to us, unfortunately, in the church... Actually, let me skip that one. What happens to us is that we begin to get this wrong, and what happens to our discipleship is it shifts from a grace-based discipleship to a fear-based discipleship. And it's insidious. It damages the church. The common practice for the legalist is to multiply laws by creating legalisms that are not even in the Scriptures. And if they are in the Scriptures, they're certainly not attached to the gospel and what makes us worthy before the Lord. Now, here, let me illustrate it by this house picture that I have for you. Note that there's a house there and that there's a fence that's in front of the house. If you'll think about this for a minute, any good parent will understand that when you have young children, it's really important to keep them safe. So imagine that this house is on a highway. It's a big road running down in front of it. And what these parents have done is they've put up a picket fence in order to keep the children safe. That's a good idea. It's a good desire for the parents to do to keep their children safe. But what happens as the kid turns into a teenager and they turn 18 and they're not allowed outside of the fence. How much joy is that kid going to experience? In fact, aren't in essence the parents stealing joy from the children? What we want to be able to do is take the fence down or give permission to go outside of the fence for the sake of being around those who need to hear the good news. 
So what happens in the church is a very similar kind of odd thing that we do. We begin to say things like this. Well, we've got new believers and we don't want them to get in trouble, so we're going to build this law. That's not a bad idea for folks at the very beginning to understand that. But what we do is we keep the law up. So we can't have any activity where we go outside of the church building. That would be bad. Heaven forbid that we actually go feed someone downtown because you might run into someone who smokes marijuana. And if their smoke might get on your clothes, it would be horrible. Well, maybe that person needs to hear the gospel and they'll never walk into this building. And by putting up these legalisms about some of these things, in some ways, do we limit the very things that God's wanting us to do? Now, I'm not saying you should smoke marijuana with the people while you're ministering to them. That's not at all what I'm saying, because I don't believe that would be thrilling to the heart of God. But what is it that we do with the way that we build these rules? Or in essence, we're stealing joy by multiplying legalisms. Now, folks, consider what happens when we get this wrong in the church. Okay, this is where the rest of the passage begins to unfold. If you get wrong this idea of where freedom can come from and what it we're set free for, what happens in the church is there's a sense of a loss of grace. Look at verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, in other words, if you put on this yoke of ritualism back into your life, if you add things to the gospel, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Why is that the case? Well, this is the case because, ultimately, if you think you can do something to earn God's favor, you're putting the, the basis of your salvation on your own good works. Here's the way this will look like in different segments of our culture. If you're a Mormon, this may be that you abstain from caffeine, you wear a certain kind of underwear, you get married and have celestial children, and hopefully someday you'll populate your own planet because of the way you've lived. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, it means following the rules of the Kingdom Hall and of the Watchtower and then visiting lots of neighbors in order to earn credits. If you're a Roman Catholic, it might mean, as I grew up, it might mean weekly participation in the Eucharist and the sacraments in order to have yourself be right with grace with God. If you're a Southern Baptist, it might mean you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't go with girls who do. If you're... If you're an an evangelical, you might have to vote Republican. If you're in the emerging church or a parachurch, you can't be in traditions at all, unless, of course, it's the traditions that we like. You know where I think the most subtle place this happens to North Wakers? Uh, Actually, and I'll just make this very personal, because I know this happens to me. Very, Very consistently, in fact. I have to work hard in this area of my life. Where I will try to add something to the gospel is the way I repent. Let me explain this to you. Last night I was at one of my favorite restaurants in town. It's recently been renamed Charlie's Kebab Restaurant. It's next to the food line up there. It used to be called Shish Kebab. Great food up there. Charlie's a great dude. Say hi to him when you go there. I know you're probably all getting hungry. You want to go now, but hold on. Just a few more minutes. So here I am. I'm at the restaurant. My wife and I are on a date. Our kids are out bowling, and so we have some time together, and we're hanging out. We get to eat outside on the porch, and um, I get up to get a refill of a soda. Okay? So I stand up from my chair, and as I'm going to go into the restaurant, I open the door, and there's a lady that's wanting to come out. And so I just, you know, as a good southern gentleman, I, I stand back, I hold the door open for her, and she doesn't even acknowledge my existence. 
<laughs> so, being the good elder of North Wake preacher this morning, I walk through the door and I say, you're welcome. <laughs> Man, I'm glad I've been free from something because, holy smokes. Here I, I mean, see, I mean, look at this. I get to preach the text of Scripture this morning, and I'm the biggest sinner in Wake Forest. That was wicked of my heart. The only reason I opened the door for her, apparently, was that I wanted an accolade. And if I didn't get it, I was going to punish her. Now, not only am I wicked at that level, folks, but here's what typically happens with me when God reveals sin. I'll come under conviction, and at that moment then, I will oftentimes not repent, but then kind of step back away and try to feel a little better about myself first. Sometimes I'll do it by trying to do something kind of nice. Sometimes I'll do it by just thinking I need some time. But what's happening in that segment of my life is that I'm wanting to be a little cleaner myself before I come back to Jesus. And at that moment, I've added something to my activities thinking I can clean myself up before God. I'm under indictment from this very text of Scripture. If I do that, then I'm obligated to obey the whole law in order to find pleasures before God. Christ has no benefit for me there. I've just said the cross doesn't matter because I can clean myself up. Now, let me be clear, and again, I'll develop this a little bit more next week. Is it important for me to want to be the kind of man who does good things? Yeah, absolutely. But when I attach it to God's acceptance of me, I've misunderstood the gospel. And subtly, I've become a legalist. Look at verses 3 and 4. When we do this, folks, we testify again to every man who receives circumcision or adds anything to the law that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Verse 4, and you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. Now, that's a very important phrase to understand verse 4. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you've in essence fallen from grace. Now, what, what's going on here is that it's not saying that someone who's come to faith in Christ can lose their salvation. Rather, it's trying to say, if you're going to try to add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ by believing you can clean yourself up, then the cross isn't worth anything to you. Why? Because this salvation was never based upon you in the first place. Your salvation was based upon God's rescue of you through the work of Christ. How silly would it be to believe that then it continues to depend upon me to keep myself clean? Paul's warning us here instead, rather, that once we place ourselves in a position where we think we can clean ourselves up, we are out of the place where we're under the benefit of the graces of God. Now contrast that, if you will, with verse 5. And my great hero of television. Look at verse 5 before we talk about my friend Yukon Cornelius. Verse 5 says, For we through the, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. In verse 5, Paul's going to make the contrast. For those who are believers, who are walking rightly well with the Lord, we're going to have the guidance of the Holy Spirit filling our lives. Our faith is in the work of Christ, and that alone is the hope of our salvation. Unfortunately, what happens, though, is that sometimes we get mixed up on this. 
And we begin to focus on whether or not we've done certain things to the law. So verse 6 then says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Okay, so let me give you this illustration. Imagine two people inherit a huge amount of gold, and it's in a deposit in California. And so person A says, hey, I want to get a hold of this. So they go to Vermont and start drilling and digging a hole in Vermont. The other person says, hey, I want to get a hold of this too. I'm going to Florida. And they go to Florida and they start digging a hole in Florida. Both of them are drilling in the wrong place. Circumcision or uncircumcision, it's not the point. The point is Christ. That's our hope. Now, Yukon Cornelius, you all remember him? He's from the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And he, he shows up on the scene because Herbie the dentist doesn't want to be a, a, an elf that makes toys. And Rudolph has got the red nose, so he's, he's misfit. And they're both wandering around in the wilderness, and they run into Yukon Cornelius. And do you remember what he was looking for? Silver and gold. You know that whole thing? Now, when, when Yukon's out in the wilderness and, and he gets his pickaxe, what does he do? He takes his pickaxe and he throws it in the air. Woo! And it lands, and he goes over and he picks it up. And what does he do? He licks it, and he says... Nothing. Nothing. Circumcision. Uncircumcision. Nothing. You're going to go home today. All you're going to want to do is watch the old rerun of Right Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I realize I've destroyed the whole sermon on that. But no, when you think... When you think of this sermon, think of Yukon Cornelius, and you think of works to make yourself right before God. Nothing. You got nothing. And folks, that brings us to what I would best describe as uh, something even more than an awkward turtle moment. You remember a couple weeks back, we, we talked about how this, this little symbol here is uh, some of the youth will use to describe an awkward moment. It's called awkward turtle. Remember we did that a little bit about two months ago when I was preaching? So this, this, if you weren't here, what that means is if you see somebody doing this, it's a symbol of a turtle on its back that can't flip over. It's in an awkward position. And usually that symbol is being done when someone does something like this. Uh, let's say earlier in our, service, our first service, a guy named Larry Lyon, who's a faithful member of our church, he's been recruited to play flag football on a seminary team, okay? Two teams want him to play. He said yes to one team. The other team's really giving him a hard time. Why don't you play for us? Why don't you play for us? Now imagine that I walk up to that scenario, okay? whether or not this really happened, you can judge or not, and I say, hey, guys, I can play. And everybody who was standing there begging Larry to play doesn't say anything at all. <laughs> Awkward turtle moment, right? Well, what we're about to read in the text of Scripture is, is, is a much bigger awkward turtle moment and for us as we tend to read this. And so I was asking my kids, are there things bigger than an awkward turtle in the, in the hand symbol? And my, one of my daughters said, you can have an awkward elk. So only one antler. Uh, or my other daughter came up with the idea of an, of an awkward palm tree. So this is an awkward palm tree. If you ever see someone making the symbol, and if, and if it's really bad in a hurricane, it goes like this. <laughs> we're at this moment in the text of Scripture. Look at verses 7 through 12 with me. You were running well, Galatians. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You you were in the gospel. You understood this. Now somebody has hindered you. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. In other words, this doesn't come from God. 
And this is really important. Look down verse 11. It also doesn't come from Paul. So where does it come from? Well, he's implying it's a direct teaching from hell. And in verse 9, he says, look, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. In modern English, the great theologian Michael Jackson might have said, one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch, girl. Paul doesn't want us to be tools of hell. And the way that you understand the gospel, being diligent to understand the gospel, what you've been freed from and freed for is absolutely vital. Because what will happen is that if you begin to teach something other than what Christ wants us to know about his death and resurrection, that little bit of wrong teaching can destroy an entire church and denomination. One little bit. So Paul's aggressive with this. And in fact, he's willing to be aggressive to the point of public rebuke of Peter. Because he knew that other people watched how Peter had blown it in chapter 2 of this book, as we talked a couple weeks back. So Paul confronted him publicly, and that was the awkward turtle moment in Galatians chapter 2, where Peter was embarrassed in front of the, the, uh, the believers in Corinth because Paul had to show him that he was being a hypocrite. And now look what he says here. Verse 10, I have confidence in you, that the Lord will adopt, that, excuse me, in the Lord, that you will uh, adopt no other view. So Paul's having confidence that the Holy Spirit will work within the Galatians believers to bring them back to truth. But notice what he says in verse 10. But the one who's disturbing you will bear his judgment. And I'm confronted as a believer, as a father, as a teacher, and even as an elder of North Wake that I have to be diligent We, as a church, need to be diligent with each other. In your home groups, in your families, how diligent are you in teaching the gospel well to your children? Because, look at the way Paul describes this. If you're not, let me put it up here, this would be point C. Paul has a sober hatred for a false gospel in verse 12. And this, folks, for us American readers, this would be the awkward turtle moment of the passage of Scripture. Paul says in verse 12, I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Do you remember the context of this book? If you will, flip back over real quickly to chapter 1. Paul says, I'm amazed in verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another one. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And that word accursed means, in other words, damned or sent away to hell. Paul is that serious about it. So when, if you add the idea of circumcision to the gospel, in verse 12 of chapter 5, he's in essence saying this. I wish that when those folks went to do the circumcision, the knife would slip and they'd cut off more. It's tough for us to read in church and to talk about. But Paul is that serious about guarding the gospel. And I ask myself, am I? How diligent are you in your life to be guarding the gospel in your doctrine? How well are you teaching it? How often are you digging deeply in God's word to understand that this gospel I must be careful because of the sober hatred that scripture indicates towards the false gospel? 
North Wakers, when people see your life, do they taste and see that the Lord is good? Do they taste and see freedom from sin, but also freedom for Christ? When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Some of you today may need to take advantage of the opportunity to finally recognize that you have been adding things to the gospel when in essence the only thing that can make you right before God is God's death in the form of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Some of you today might need to place your faith in Christ for the first time. Some of you, I imagine many of you like yourselves, like myself, may be under conviction that there are places in your life, pockets where you're adding legalisms to yourself or to others. And I would encourage you, in the next song when the band comes up to use that time to repent well. In my life, I've already discovered I have to repent of my repentance. And maybe God's stirring you in similar ways. Let me pray for us as we finish.